This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. So our um, our first two sessions were a new way to read, and we well, first of all, the seminar title was um, "Christ: The Watchword for the Revolution," or as I like to say, Christ, the catalyst for the revolution. And the first two presentations dealt with a new way to read. And we talked about how Christ uh, introduced his followers in the apostolic church to a new way to read and to interpret the scriptures. And we, we found out how dynamic that was, how life-changing it was for them, and how they in turn took that and they began to preach and teach with power. And the Holy Spirit was uh, obviously present there and attended what, um, what they did and all of their labors. We also kind of began with the premise that Jesus Christ, in fact, is, was and is the catalyst for uh, the revolution that's taking place here on this planet Earth. And the Bible alludes to that. In two places, we looked at um, one was in Mark, which said that the Lord ascended in the sight of his disciples and then the Lord worked with his disciples. And uh, he he was the one, according to the Gospel of Mark, that gave the signs and the wonders that accompanied their preaching that showed that it was indeed genuine. Um, and then, of course, Luke wrote in Acts chapter 1 to Theophilus and said, what I gave you in my gospel or in the writing of the gospel was what Jesus began both to do and to, or to preach and to teach. So in Luke's mind, that was only the beginning of the work of Christ. And the continuation of the work of Christ you find in the book of Acts, of course, down to our time. Our second two presentations were the key to the promise, key to the promise. And we, um, we began by looking at the promise in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, where he said that the promise of the Father had been given through Jesus. And he said, what you're seeing in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost was actually the promise of the Father. We then went to Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, where the Apostle Paul says that the blessing of Abraham was to come upon all the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say what that blessing is, that we might receive the Holy Ghost. So we went back to Genesis from there and looked at what the promise was that was given to, Ab- given to Abraham and how he, would, he and his seed would be a blessing to all families of the earth. And our conclusion was that God had promised way back in Genesis chapter 12, his desire was for all families of the earth to hear about who he was and to be given an opportunity to make a choice for him. And so the, the result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is that men and women will call on the name of the Lord and be saved. We see that in Joel chapter 2. We see Joel chapter 2's partial fulfillment in Acts chapter 2, 
and we are now living in a time, we believe we're living in a time where we will see the, the final fulfillment of the outpouring of the Spirit where every creature under heaven will be given an opportunity to make a decision for Christ and call on the name of the Lord and those that do will be saved. And now, uh, and then we also said that Christ was not only the key for that worldwide thing, but he's also the key for our individual experience with the Holy Spirit in our lives. And now uh, in the last two sessions, we're going to talk about, um, what are we going to talk about? Uh, All right. We're going to talk about one accord. We're going to talk about one accord. If you're like me, the catalyst for one accord. Yeah. If you're like me, then you, uh, you, have, you have read the book of Acts and you've seen that, that phrase, one accord, and you said, man, I don't think we'll ever see it again. And if you've ever been a member of uh, a church board or any type of planning committee that's trying to do anything, then you are affirmed in your belief that we will never see it again. And uh, I remember the, uh, in my district, one of the first business meetings that I came to, yeah, we had an interesting an interesting time there. And uh, I, I left thinking, man, <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever see one accord again. Um, so what we want to do is we want to look at what was the catalyst for the experience of one accord that the early church had. Uh, one of the things that we'll do also is we'll take a look at what it means to be on one accord. Because I believe a lot of us have an incorrect understanding of what one accord actually is. And that's one of the reasons why we never, why we think we'll never see it. Because our concept of what it is, is not correct. But just a little bit before we um, delve into, before we delve into, um, some of what I want to say. I want to kind of give a biblical background and show how the scriptures, the scriptures uh, talk about the need for us to work together and be on one accord, essentially. But it mentions it a lot of a lot of different ways. How many of you have heard the term no man is an island? You've heard that term. okay? Um, that was a part of. um, a part of a a series of passages by a man by the name of John Don. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Maybe it's Don, or I don't know how the English guys do it. But uh, the, the rest of it goes like this. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less as well as if a promontory were as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore 
Never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. So uh, when I found the entirety of that, I thought that was a that's a tremendous, a tremendous outlook um, on life. Obviously, he wasn't uh, he was kind of a theologian, this guy. But I don't think he was necessarily speaking from a Christian perspective uh, at that point when he wrote that poem necessarily. But uh, he says that when the bell tolls, essentially, this is what I got. When the bell tolls, I don't need to know who has died because I understand that a part of me has died. What a tremendous understanding. Can you imagine if 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 a church functioned like that? Whatever happens to you happens to me because you and I are a part of one another. Tremendous. What I've noticed is that that as Christians, we have tended to to isolate. We've tended to isolate certain experiences uh, in the lives of the believers. Everyone knows that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, will we do it as a church? No. Will we do it as a family? If you are married, will you do it as a couple? No. Will you do it with your friends? No. How do we stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Alone. We stand individually before the judgment seat of Christ. And also, also we, 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 we know that when it comes to accepting Jesus Christ as Savior in one's life, we put another adjective there. We say personal Savior, right? Which is descriptive of the type of decision this is. This is a personal decision. I'm not making this because of my family. I'm not making this because of uh, my friends. I'm not doing this because of the town that I've grown up in. I am making this decision personally, individually. And as Christians, we tend to take that experience at the beginning of one's walk with the Lord and another experience, which is uh, near the end, at least sometimes, of an individual's experience with the Lord. And we make it appear as though that is the entirety of the Christian walk. So I don't need you because I got to stand before the judgment seat by myself. I had to accept Christ without you. And I'm going to have to answer for all the deeds done in, in my body without you. So it's all about me. And sometimes we can have the the idea that <laughs> we can have the idea that I can have a strong relationship with God and not have a strong relationship with you. See what I mean? Everything can be all right between God and I. If things are horrible between you and I. And I can go on praying and preaching and taking the third angel's message and, uh, and waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. By the way, it'll never come if that's my mindset. But, but I'll be waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and I can do it all by myself. But the New Testament gives us a, a very different picture than that. And I would like to read a couple of passages where... The scriptures emphasize the importance of togetherness. The first one comes from the book of John. John chapter 17. John chapter 17, 
beginning with verse 20. This is Jesus speaking. This is that famous chapter where Jesus is praying for his followers. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be, what? That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Just pause right there. Did, did, you, did you get that or did you miss it? Jesus essentially says that the world's belief on his, on the validity of his claims to be the Messiah, to be the son of God, that the validity of those claims rest on the oneness of his people. That's amazing. I got to ask Jesus, I mean, why don't you let it rest on something else? Why allow it to rest on that? Because, man, that's, that's a serious situation right there. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and has loved them as thou hast loved me. John chapter 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 now. First Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll begin with verse four. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For the one is given by the spirit, the word of wisdom, to another, the word of knowledge by the same spirit. To another faith by the same spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether bond or free and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. You get Paul's point. I'm sure you've heard this before. He's emphasizing over and over again the fact that we are one in Christ, that we are like a body. Right. And no one, uh, no matter how small your pinky finger is or your little pinky toe is. No one doesn't care about that. Right. If you stub your pinky toe, in fact, it'll hurt probably worse than if you were to bang your knee on something. All right. So every part is cared for in the body. Let's take a look at another passage. This one is in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 3. The 
The Bible says, for I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ and everyone, what do the next words say? Members one of another. Now we often talk about being members of Christ, but how often do we talk about being members of one another? Members of one another, even as we are members of Christ, which means that this relationship is also, uh, we cannot have this relationship independent of this relationship. All right. Another passage, Ephesians chapter 4. No, let's skip Ephesians 4. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three, verse nine, for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. Ye are God's building. Now. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that um, if you're making a building, you know, I, I, I have to admit I, I am a pastor. So this is coming from a pastor, you know, take it for what it's worth, what have you. But, um, you know, I've, I've often run into people who say, man, I'm going to leave and I'm going to go to such and such a church because I don't feel whatever I don't feel here. So I'm, I'm going to go to X church because this church. Now, if you've ever gone to a building, have you ever seen a brick jump out from the rest of the bricks and say, I don't like being a part of this structure, so I'm going to go over and I'm going to join that structure. <laughs> Have you ever seen a brick do that? To this day, I've never seen a brick do that. The Bible says that we are God's building, which means that God is the master craftsman, which means that he's the one who places each brick where it's supposed to be. He's the one who has put me where I'm supposed to be. And unless he as the master builder chooses to move me, then guess what? I need to remain right where I am instead of complaining about all the bricks that are around me and what they're not doing. Now, we're all bricks and we're all connected. And in order for the structure to remain, each one of us is essential and each one of us is necessary. Does that make sense? Yes or no? So. The Bible says over and over again and stresses this, that um, that we need one another. We need each other. So uh, what I want us to do now is begin to take a look at what it means to be on one accord. So I will ask you. I want to ask you before I give you any answers, I want to ask you some questions. What does it mean to be on one accord? Okay, 
She says to have the same common goal. Someone else. One accord. To be in agreement. To work in harmony. To have unity in spirit. What else? One accord. This is what the apostles had in the early church, and it mentions it over and over again. To trust that God is at work in the other person's life just as much as he is in my life. Someone else? Okay, not to think yourself higher than anyone else. Someone else? All right. So if there's a circle and Christ is in the center, then the closer we draw to the center, the closer we come to one another. Someone else. One accord. Contentment. Contentment, he says. One accord means contentment. Someone else. Acceptance. Now, that's pretty good. I like that one. Showing. Sharing with others what God has given you. Okay. Someone else. Okay. A strong friendship without tension, did you say? Without tension. All right. Someone else? To have patience with each other. All right. Anyone else? Now, let me ask you a question. Another question. <laughs> in a political campaign, the right here in the U.S., we just had one, a presidential election. And these men carried on campaigns. Is it very friendly during a political campaign? No. Did you get the sense or have you ever gotten the sense during a political campaign when you see the billboards and and if you watch the debate, not just in a presidential sense, but for the Senate race and all the other things that were going on, do you get the sense that the that the opponents um, have uh, kind or warm feelings for one another. Some of the looks and some of the comments make you believe that they actually hate each other, right? That sometimes if it were not for the television camera, they would jump across and maybe begin to plummet, you know, uh, the, the other one's face. So... Politics are unusually, they're unusually um, filled with vitriolic words and hatred and things like that. Um, That's why it's kind of shocking that the original use of the word, um, the Greek word that uh, 
the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, used when he used one accord, it actually comes from the political realm in Greece. One accord was when two rival politicians, let's say they lived in the city of Athens, and they were rivals. Now, from what you just told me, most politicians don't have warm, fuzzy feelings one for another, right? They're rivals. But when the city of Athens is being attacked, these two politicians experience, in the Greek, one accord. So, one accord, now let's take everything that you guys said, and there's a lot of good that's in there, but one accord does not necessarily mean that you and I agree on everything. It doesn't mean we have warm, fuzzy feelings towards one another, necessarily. In its original context or in its original usage, that word meant that there is a, here it is, a common enemy. And we experience one accord because we come together in order to, again, using our illustration, to defend our city against this enemy. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean happens to all of the vitriol and all of the the hatred that we felt for one another? It means that those things are laid aside because there is a greater cause. Are you with me? There is a common cause that is greater than all of your differences. All right. We don't believe the same thing about whatever it is we don't believe the same thing about. But there is a cause that is greater than this uh, disagreement that we have about the Bible or whatever. And so we lay all of our negative feelings aside and we lay our political positions aside in order to march under the banner of this greater cause, this common cause. Because if we continue to fight and the city of Athens is attacked, we may both lose our lives. Yes or no? So it makes all the sense in the world for you and I to experience one accord. Right. Now, I suggested to you that when we talked about uh, the catalyst for one accord, that I wanted us to have a correct understanding. One accord does not mean that we agree on everything. One accord does not mean that I surrender my uh, my long held or long standing position of belief in whatever it is I believe in, whatever doctrines they are that I hold. It doesn't mean that I surrender any of those things in order to experience one accord. See, one of the reasons why we don't experience one accord in God's church is because that's how we think. You know, Ellen White has a statement where she says, if um, if unity is to be gained by compromise of truth, then let there be division and war, right? And so a lot of people are like, yes, that's it. We cannot unify because I believe this way and that person believes that way. So we can never experience unity because if I come together with that person, it would mean that I'm compromising what I believe to be truth. But that's not what one accord is about. 
One accord is not about sacrificing what you believe to be truth. One accord is about seeing a common cause that is greater than this particular thing that you hold to be truth. And saying, okay, so here it is. Here's my belief about whatever it is. And when I look at the common cause, is this greater than this? Is this greater than all the weight of the great controversy? Is this greater than Christ's heavenly high priestly ministry? Is this greater than Jesus' desire to return here to this planet Earth? Is this greater than his desire to pour out the Holy Spirit here on this planet Earth so that the Earth can be lightened with his glory? Is this that important? Is it more important than all of that? And I don't believe that there's anything right now in the world of Adventist theological debate. I don't believe there's anything that's more important than those things that I've mentioned. There's not one that's more important in and of itself than the things that I've mentioned. Which means that there is nothing in the church that should keep us from experiencing one accord. If we can all agree at least on this one thing. That there is a common cause that we can unite under and that cause is greater than any one of our individual differences in and of themselves. Now, you know, I, I have a I have kind of a problem when it comes to the way we look at characters in the Bible, because we tend to look at characters in the Bible and make them superhuman beings. And so we have this glamorous picture of everybody. We have a glamorous picture of David. We have a glamorous picture of Abraham. And we even though we know that they've done things that are wrong, we tend to kind of, you know, go soft on those because after all, they did speak with God. And after all, they did all of these great things. And we tend to look at even the apostles and what took place in the book of Acts. And we tend to think that they are so superhuman and that the experience they had was so far away from anything that we can experience that we will never see this in our lifetime. But let me tell you, the disciples they were converted when they were there in the upper room. I believe that. But I do not believe that they had given up some of their long cherished ideas. In fact, in Acts chapter one, when Jesus, when he's getting ready to ascend, the disciples are, hey, man, it's now going to be the time you set up your kingdom. <laughs> they still hadn't got it, it still wasn't fixed in their minds. In fact, in, uh, in Acts chapter 15, the biggest problem in the New Testament church was, guess what? The biggest problem in the New Testament church was about Jews and G Jewish and Gentile relationships and whether the Gentiles who are converted to Christianity should be circumcised and whether they should have to uh, involve themselves in Jewish culture in order to really be saved. When from the very beginning, when from the very beginning, Jesus said things like, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness. Then shall the end come. He had told them right there in the book of Acts chapter one. He told them. And, and it, now, now, listen, he told them in Acts chapter one, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And uh, uh, what did he say? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. Right. And it wasn't until Acts chapter 10. That they are actually. Willing, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius only because God has visited him in a dream and has told him someone is there. Come. Now, don't you think that Peter was so high and holy that if uh, Cornelius's servant has showed up without God intervening and speaking to him in a vision that he would have gone with him? He would not have. 
That's because Peter was still prejudiced. But it took a vision from God in Acts chapter 10 to move Peter to go to the home of Cornelius. And then it took God working another miracle by pouring the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and his household and giving them the gift of tongues to convince Peter that this was actually of God. They're like, whoa, man, the same thing, the same thing that happened to us. They're experiencing it, too. So I don't believe for one minute that in the upper room that everything was together with them. Which is kind of sad. It's actually kind of sad because. If they didn't even have everything together and <laughs> and God could pour out his spirit on them. Man, what what what's going on with us? It's kind of sad in that sense. But they were not all even in agreeance on everything. They didn't agree on every point. It's manifested as you continue to read through the book of Acts. And, uh, you know, I have a friend who suggests that that uh, Paul and Peter's exchange in Galatians. You remember there when uh, Paul and Peter were sitting with the Gentiles and they were eating. And then some brethren from Jerusalem came in and Paul got up. I mean, excuse me, Peter got up and said, oh, I got to go to the bathroom and went. And when he came back out, he just slid in with the guys from Jerusalem. And Paul said Barnabas was carried away with it, too. Now, you were just eating with the Gentiles. And now all of a sudden, just because the brothers from Jerusalem came in, you don't even want to talk to them. You don't want to sit at the same table with them. And all of a sudden you're on the other side of the room. And Paul says, I withstood him to his face. Like, man, what are you doing? How are you going to preach the gospel that we've been given to preach? And yet you're acting like this. So these things were deeply rooted in their hearts. My point, the, the point I'm making and I'm simply saying is that they were not completely in agreement on all things, even there in the upper room. But there had to be one thing that they were in agreement on. There had to be one thing in the minds of everyone there in the upper room that superseded all of their differences. And it caused them to see their differences differently than they ever had before, to the point where this one thing that they agreed on became more important than all of their differences. And they were able to look at one another and say, man, you know, you and I, we've never agreed on this. But you know what? We've never agreed on certain subjects. But you know what? Man, there is a cause that's greater than this disagreement we have between one another. And I'm willing to lay that down in order to take up this. I'm willing to lay that down in order to take up this cause. One accord. Amen. One accord. I would submit to you today that um, what they experienced or what they had in common was something that you and I can have in common too. And all of our churches can have in common. So that there is no, there's absolutely no reason, not even one reason, why we should not be able to experience being on one accord. Being on one accord. Another, another uh, misconception, I believe, and maybe some of you have heard me say this before, but, uh, you know, the Bible says that they had all things in common also, right? And so our, our tendency is to think that. We should just have all things in common. 
let's just everybody have all things in common and then let's just move along. Actually, there was an an extraordinary phenomenon that had taken place, which brought the church to the place to the place where they had all things in common. You know what that was? It was the conversion of three thousand individuals in one day. Now, these people who were converted, they were all from Jerusalem, right? No. If you read in Acts and you read that list of countries that the folks had come from and the languages that they spoke, they were not all from Jerusalem. All right. Three thousand individuals were converted in one day who came from different places. Right. Now, before they left, they had to be taught. This was one sermon that was preached. They said, what must we do? They were baptized, right? They said, we believe in Jesus Christ. What must we do? Hey, repent, every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. Bam, they're baptized. The church in one day grows by 3,000. And you've got people who are from China. You've got people who are from North Korea and South Korea and Laos and Indonesia. You've got people who are from Zimbabwe and Gabon. And you've got people who are from, uh, uh, from Peru and, and Colombia. You've got folks from all over the world who are at Jerusalem at this time. Now, the church wasn't that big, was it? Maybe 120. Right? So when you read about all things in common, you, when you read about people having all things in common, it's not like they had a committee meeting and said, hey, everybody, let's have all things in common. <laughs> that was born out of necessity. There was something that transpired that brought about the need for them to give of themselves, the need for them to have all things in common. In other words, before these 3,000 people or uh, however many need to go back to their homes, they need to be trained. This is why in Acts chapter 2, you read about the apostles going from house to house. Those 120 had done what? They had opened their homes and they had allowed these new believers to come into their homes. They were sharing whatever they had in order to sustain the church. So they could receive training and instruction before they were sent back to their home countries. So as a result of a need that arose as a result of the preaching of the gospel and the acceptance of the gospel, the church therefore had all things in common. I'm saying this to say that a lot of times we have concepts in our mind. We say, let's just have all things in common. If we could just have all things in common, like the church in Acts, but the church in Acts didn't just have all things in common. They didn't have a board meeting and a business meeting and decide to have all things in common. They didn't have a board meeting and decide, let's be on one accord. They didn't have a GYC seminar and say, let's be on one accord. This is how to be on one accord. If we all just do this, and I'm sure that if your churches are like mine, that you've talked about unity before, you've probably heard sermons uh, about unity before, and the pastors preached till he was blue in the face about unity, 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 and you had programs and you ate popcorn together and ate smoothies and everything trying to have unity, and you did things in order to bring everyone into a place where they could experience unity, and you know what? They're still not unity. You tried to get to one accord through programs and you couldn't make it. You tried to get to all things in common through programs and it didn't happen. And so what I want you to understand is this, that there were circumstances which brought about these results. We cannot plan ourselves into those same results. 
can't do it. And there was one thing, there was one thing that just like there was one thing that brought about all things in common, there was also one thing that brought about one accord. There was one event that dynamically and radically changed all of the perspectives and all of the minds of those who were involved in what we saw at Pentecost. And I'm going to tell you what that is when we come back. For the last presentation, I'm going to tell you what that one event is that radically changed the minds and the lives of each of these individuals. Because some of them were, and in fact, the disciples have been bitter enemies amongst themselves, right? They have been battling all of this time to see who was going to be the greatest. And then all of a sudden, they just decided, oh, no, it's not important who's going to be greatest anymore. Let's have a board meeting and decide it's not important anymore. Mm -mm, that's not what happened. So in our final presentation, that's what I'm going to share with you. The catalyst, what, what truly was the catalyst for one accord? And if you have been listening, if you have a pulse and you've been here and you've listened for even five minutes, you should already know or have some sort of idea as to what or who or what or whatever the catalyst for that one accord is. And so uh, if you choose to come back, I pray the Lord blesses you. If not, listen to it. But I think you already have an idea who's involved with it. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Loving Father and our God, we thank you so very much for, for helping us to, to clearly see the things that are contained in Scripture. Um, for us to, helping us to understand, dear Lord, that it is not simply about having a relationship with you. That we will not individually uh, make it to heaven as such. But we must come with someone. I pray, dear Father, that you would radically transform the way we see our churches, the way we see our congregations. Help us to accept the testimony of Scripture, which says that we are members not only of Christ, but members of one another. Help us, dear Lord, to see uh, Jesus's prayer in John chapter 17, that uh, the communities where our churches are, their belief in our message and the validity of the one about whom we preach. That it rests on our ability to come together as you have intended. Father, I pray that each one of us would have our part. And when we come back together again and we take a look at what it is that, that, uh, that was the catalyst for the one accord experienced on the day of Pentecost and beyond in the book of Acts, I pray that we too would share in that same experience. Bless us to this end is our prayer. Thank you for everyone who's come and listened. Bless them for their time in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.